the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, does obeying God mean that life is always going to be fair? We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 25 verse 34. Once again, that's 1 Samuel chapter 25 verse 34. Let me share with you that following Jesus will always have an element of believing in what you can't see. So if you're looking for all of the elements of faith to be something you can see, you're going to be disappointed because the Bible doesn't claim that that's what faith is. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's the realization of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, our faith is not entirely based on what we cannot see. There is a substance to our faith. There is a substance to our hopes. Our worship, the Bible says, is reasonable. It's logical. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 calls it our reasonable, our logical act of worship. How is our faith logical or reasonable? How how is it a substance we can see? Well, creation is the most basic substance, that God exists and that he is all-powerful is something we can learn just by looking out our window. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it tells us, for the invisible things of God have been clearly seen by those things that are made. It says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. How? Being understood by the things that are made. And then it tells us what the things we do know about God from that. His eternal power and his Godhead. The fact that he exists, his Godhead, and his all-powerfulness, his eternal power, so that they are without excuse. So creation is the most basic substance we have for our faith. We call this general revelation. You don't need a Bible to understand that. Any person can look out there and know God's real and he's big, right? And to ignore and reject that is to ignore and reject what you can see with your own eyes. Now, the greatest substance, though, is not creation. It is God's word. In Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 8, when God is reasoning with Israel in their idolatry, he says to them in verses 6 through 8, he says, thus says the Lord, this is Isaiah 44, if you're taking notes, Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. He says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who as I shall 
call, the, the phrase there means to proclaim something, and shall declare it, and shall set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come, well, who are they? Let them show them. He calls anyone to the table. He says, you say you're God? You say you're real? Then you come and declare what's real. You come and declare what's true. You come and predict the future, and let's see how you do. And of course, nobody can do that except the Lord. In verse 8, he says, fear you not, neither be afraid. Have I not told you from that time, and have I not declared it? You are even my witnesses. I'm the only one who does this. Is there a God beside me? There is no God. I know not any. I've invited anyone to come to the table to predict accurately 100%. No one has come. I'm the only one who can do that. In Isaiah 44, verses 24 through 26, he says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he that formed you from the womb, I am the Lord that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself, that frustrates the tokens of the liars, these predictions that these prophets make and stuff like that, that turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolish, that confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. Jesus taught the same truth. In John 5, 39, he said, You search the scriptures, rightly so, because they speak about me. The Lord, through his prophets, predicted things. And so we call this special revelation because it contains, God's word contains eyewitness accounts and proves through predictive prophecy. Now, what's interesting about this concept of our faith that there's a seen component and an unseen component we see that is the consistent teaching of Scripture. In Second Peter, he describes our faith this way. In Second Peter chapter 1, I believe, verse 16, Peter is about to go home to be with the Lord. He's about to be executed for his faith. He was an eyewitness. And he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. And it said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. He goes, my faith is based on something I heard with my own ears. I saw with my own eyes. It's real. I'm not making stuff up and passing it on to you. But then he says this, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place. He says, I've got my eyewitness account, but you've got all of scripture here. You've got the entirety of scripture. That is something that is real. That is substance that you can know that the Lord is real. You can examine this thing. I tell you, every time God comes through, when I find something here and I go, Lord, this doesn't seem to line up with what I'm seeing. And the Lord says, then you need to keep digging, son, because the problem's not me. And every single time the Lord shows himself to be faithful. I am the most skeptical of skeptics out there. I don't believe anything anybody tells me. I'm certainly not just going to take anything at face value. And I have seen over and over again of my 30 plus years of walking with Jesus. His word is real. It's proven to be true. 
So he talks about what is our substance, but then look at the end of verse 19 here in 2 Peter 1, because then he gets to the unseen part. He says, you know, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Verse 19 here describes the substance and the unseen part of our faith. In other words, God's word is the light that shines so we can see. We have substance. And that is the thing we hold on to as real until Jesus, the part we can't see until he returns for us. There will always be an unseen part. I cannot tell you. You say, how do you know Jesus is coming back? Well, the word tells me. I need more. I need to see him. Well, the Bible doesn't promise you will, not until he returns. So you need to have the part that is the substance, base of your faith, but then there is the part where you need to trust the Lord. Because without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord, right? For you who comes to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, there is one other substance to our faith, and it is God's work in the lives of his people. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, he tells the Corinthians, you are our letters, our of recommendation, of commendation. You are living epistles with God's work written on your heart. When we say things like, why doesn't God do miraculous things for me? It's because we hear about the miraculous things God's doing in others. It's not because we don't think miracles exist. We don't say it because they don't ever happen. We say it because why didn't it happen to me? Have you ever been in that situation where somebody tells you a story and they're like, man, God came through for me. It's so amazing. You know, we, we had this situation come up and, and God gave me a new car. And you're like, yeah, wh- wh- where am I in the queue? There are times when it doesn't seem like God's doing that in our lives. And we question, we're like, God, are you out there? It's not because we don't hear the stories of him working in other people's lives. It's because we don't necessarily see it in that moment in our lives. That's why it's so important to be around other believers, though. Because we are living letters of God's real work. Peter calls us living stones in what Jesus is building. Well, David believed God being real was the most real thing out there. And he has to. (laughs) He has to be real because he's the only person who could have changed David's mind from his intent to kill every single man in Nabal's employ. And now when David says this, I could almost imagine, you know, a little gulp from Abigail like, oh, that's what was going to happen. That's what we just averted. This is the part where I would have taken a deep gulp followed by a sigh of relief. She'd been right to follow God's leading because an absolute disaster had barely been averted. And sadly, of course, when we obey the Lord, it doesn't always end that way because it takes two to tango, right? It does. It takes two to tango. David could have resisted the Lord's work through Abigail and hardened his heart, which brings us now back to our text and and our application of, do I have a reasonable heart or the importance of a reasonable heart? Do you listen to people who tell you you're headed in the wrong direction? Ever? Or do you resist those voices because you always believe you're right? Which of those two attitudes describes your life better? One of those real frank conversations I have to have with people every once in a while is I say, do you ever listen to someone else when they tell you to not do what you want to do? I mean, has there ever been a time where you've said, you know, maybe you're right. I need to think about that and pray about that. Because if the answer to that is no, then you might want to consider if the problem's not everyone else. It's very easy to say, well, you don't understand, or I know what I need to do here, or I'm doing the best I can. That may be true. All of those things may be true, but we are so fallible. It's why we need to listen to other people. It's why the Bible tells us that 
there's wisdom in many counselors. It's why it tells us the importance of humility and allowing good counsel to come into your life. Because if you say that the attitude that describes your life a little better is the one that resists other people's voices, that is not a reasonable heart. That's a stubborn, proud heart. We quote Proverbs 16, verse 18 all the time. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But we often forget the verses that are right around it. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 16 through 20 says this. It says, how much better is it to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver? The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He that keeps his way preserves his soul. Pride, in contrast to that, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. He that handles a matter wisely shall find good, and whosoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. Do you see the verses that frame that verse that's the famous one? The other ones are the ones we don't tend to remember, but those are just as important. This is not just a generic warning against pride. It's a warning against ignoring good counsel, of ignoring those who share God's word with us because, well, I think I know better. But these verses here in Proverbs 16 are also a promise of something better, not destruction, not a fall, something better to the one who does listen to biblical counsel, something better to the one who does stop to ponder if maybe and consider maybe my judgment is actually bad in this situation. Maybe I'm not having the right approach to this. It's good to come to a place where you go, you know what? My judgment stinks in this conversation. You're right. Because it keeps you from a possible catastrophe. It brings the blessings that Proverbs 16 talks about. Having a reasonable heart is a result of being humble. And God gives grace to the humble, doesn't he? Don't you need a lot of grace? I know I do. I need a ton of grace. Well, David, he is reasonable in this instance. And so in verse 35, back here in 1 Samuel 25, it says, so David received of her hand that which she had brought him. This was the supplies that she had prepared and put on five donkeys and came out to meet David with them. So David received those supplies and he says to her, go up in peace to your house. In other words, peace, shalom. I want the best for you wholeness, completeness, soundness. And then he says, see, which means know this. I have hearkened to your voice and I have accepted your person. The phrase there, to accept a person, it means to lift up their face. What he's telling Abigail is he's saying, Abigail, go without any worries for today or the future as it concerns this conflict today. You and everyone associated with you are not those I look down on with anger anymore. You have been raised up to the same spot you had been in as if this conflict had never happened. I have accepted your person. I've lifted up your face. And so David forgives the wrong done to him and turns away from his wicked course of action. And that's what a reasonable heart does when it's confronted with wisdom. So yay, catastrophe averted, right? Yes, but Abigail still has to go home because she never told her husband what she was doing. He has no clue about this meeting. So verse 36, look at what it says here. And Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunken. Wherefore, she told him nothing less or more until the morning light. 
Abigail has to wait to tell Nabal because he's drunk. Early in the chapter, it mentioned that Abigail didn't tell Nabal what she was going to do to stop David from destroying them. Well, now we know why. Why didn't she tell him? He wasn't in a position to have a conversation. He was having a feast like he was the king. I think it's interesting it mentions that because it's ironic to me. You remember the passage in Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 5, where King Belteshazzar is throwing a feast? Remember what does Daniel tell him? Tonight's your last night to be alive, buddy. You might be throwing a big party and thinking it's a great thing. This is your last night alive. Unbeknownst to King Belshazzar, the Persian army had diverted the Euphrates River and they were going to sneak into the city via the dry riverbed that ran right through the middle of the city. Didn't have to scale any walls. Didn't have to lose any men with a siege. You're just going to get right into the city with no problem. He thought he was perfectly safe. And in the same way, unbeknownst to Nabal, an army of 400 men was coming to exterminate him and everything that was dear to him. And he's throwing a party. Thinks everything's great there's a lesson there for us. We may act like kings, but we are in control of very little, right? We are in control of very little. Better to act with a little humility than like the highest authority in the land. Better to act with submission than like someone who's accountable to no one. Well, he was partying, celebrating. It was a sheep shearing. This is a common occurrence when sheep shearings occurred, and he had a lot to drink, and so he was not in a position to have a conversation. So we see here that Abigail wasn't hiding anything from Nabal because of the influence of the alcohol. He was not capable of making decisions at this point in time. She planned to tell him everything once he was sober. So verse 37, the morning comes. When it came to pass in the morning, when he's sober, when the wine was gone out of Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him. The word there died means failed. He's not dead yet. His heart failed and he became as a stone. He got rigid. And it came to pass about 10 days later that the Lord smote Nabal and he died. Wow, that was interesting resolution to that conflict. Again, Abigail is not flying solo on this meeting with David to be sneaky. She's doing it because Nabal's not capable of doing it at this point in time. She lets him know what happened at the soonest point possible. And when it says here that Abigail, verse 37, in the morning told him these things. That literally means she told him everything. She left nothing out. Told him what she gave David, told him of her conversation with David, what David planned to do. This is very important to understand if you're married. I have met many Christians, and and please understand, I'm speaking to husbands and wives now. I'm not singling out one gender or one part of the marriage here. I have met many Christians who perceive their spouse as less spiritual than them, or perceive their spouse as detrimental to the family's well-being. And as such, they will arbitrarily make decisions for the family or hide information from that spouse they don't trust. That is not how marriage works. God will not bless and he will not honor that. If Abigail could be in the horrible marriage that she's in, but still involve her husband as much as was possible given his state, then so can you and I, don't you think? So can you and I. Because even if your spouse really is a fool, Abigail is an example of how to handle being married to a person who makes bad decisions. Okay? Now, here we see that Nabal, when he hears the news, his heart fails him. Uh, The Bible doesn't tell us, like, if he felt overwhelmed by this information or if he got mad uh, or if some other kind of stress from this triggered a heart attack. I don't know. 
But whatever the initial cause that brought it on, God is the reason he doesn't recover from it. Look at verse 38. And it came to pass about 10 days later that the Lord smote Nabal that he died. Me personally, I wonder if God allowed him to have the heart attack to get his attention and gave him 10 days to repent. That's, that's me personally. I don't know. That's what I think. But at the end of those 10 days, whatever the reason was, the Lord said, you're done, buddy. You're done. And he died. He smote him so that he did not recover. He died from this heart attack. Now, while the righteous in heaven will say, just and true are your ways, O God, when he judges the wicked, there's no party in heaven because God does not derive joy from judgment. In Ezekiel chapter 18, 31 through 32, he pleads with Israel to repent. He says, for why will you die? Ezekiel 18, 31 and 32. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit, the Lord tells him. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure, no joy in the death of him that dies, says the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. That's what God takes pleasure in, when people repent. He doesn't take pleasure in judging the wicked. Don't let anyone ever tell you that, by the way. God, God rejoices in justice being done, in the sense of justice is right and it needs to be done. But he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. There's no party going on. In contrast, what does the Bible say happens when one sinner repents in heaven? All the angels rejoice, right? There is a party. There is rejoicing. Which is what makes David's response here a bit bothersome. Look at verse 39. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord. Praises be to the Lord that has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. And David sent and communed with Abigail to take her to him to wife. We'll get to that second weird part later. Let's start with the first weird part here. David, he says, praise be to the Lord. And then he, it's interesting, he gives two reasons but then says that's not actually the reason he's praising the Lord. Two reasons. He says, number one, the Lord pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal. Number two, that God kept his servant from evil. First thing here we look at, he says, praises be to the Lord, because the Lord, he says, he pleaded the cause of my reproach. To plead the cause, it means to be someone's defender, their defense attorney in a legal, a legal dispute. So he says, God was my defense attorney. When Nabal reproached me, the word there means insulting or harmful words. Nabal did falsely accuse David and his men of rebellion against Saul. David had never done that. His men had never done that. So this slander of Nabal could have incorrectly turned others against David and his men. It's good to praise God when he defends you from false accusations, right? That's a good thing. David doesn't praise the Lord for that, though. He also mentions here that what else God did is he, God kept him from his servant, he's referring to himself, from great evil. Listen, if God pleaded your case when you were wrongfully accused of something, that's something to be thankful for. Praise the Lord for it. If I was about to do something wicked and God stood in my path and he turned me back in the right direction, that's another good reason to praise God. But that's not why David praises God. It says, praises be to the Lord. And then he says here, that... 
pleaded the, he just says this is what God did, but then he says why he's praising the Lord. For, that's the because, why praises be to the Lord? Well, God did these two things, but what I'm praising him for is for the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. While David mentions these two wonderful things God did, his praise isn't for those two things. It's reserved for something else. Justice. Oh, not justice in the sense of righting a wrong. Abigail had already done that, right? Abigail had already righted the wrong to David. The justice here is in the sense of giving Nabal what he deserved. Oh man, those words are hard for me even to say. Oh, he got what he deserved. Ooh, I just... I cringe anytime I hear somebody say that, especially if I hear a Christian say that. How can David in the same breath say that God didn't give him what he deserved, but turned him around and, and going in the other direction, but then praise God for giving Nabal what he deserved? There's a contradiction there. And this is the backsliding slope that David has begun to fall down on. He's tired of being falsely accused. He's tired of being wronged. And it's going to lead David down a very dark path. Now, maybe you're thinking, but that's not fair. I mean, David did the right thing and he gets mistreated, right? No, it's not fair. You're correct. But it is the life of a believer. The life of a believer isn't always fair. And I don't want what's fair. I want mercy. <laughs> I want mercy. And that is the life of a believer. To experience God's mercy and to give it to others. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Strong on me will save. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.